if you want to vote for Bernie Sanders because you feel good about his program, uh, because you, you, you don't like the, the, the banks on Wall Street or you don't like pharmaceuticals, that's completely legitimate. I understand that. If you're voting for him because you think he'll win the election, because he'll galvanize heretofore uh, sleepy parts of the electorate, then politically, you're a fool. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein. Uh, This is part of, we are going to be doing The Weeds on Saturday, uh, at least through the election campaign. Uh, Alternate weeks, you'll hear me and Ezra talking about campaign 2020 and the election season. And that's going to be switching with interviews by Jane Coaston with some of the thinkers and actors, movers and shakers in the conservative world. So we are trying to do more Weeds. All weeds, everything. Um, Related to that, I do want to make a quick job announcement, which is not specifically weeds, but is a weeds-ish set of topics. So we are hiring for a politics reporter and a race reporter at Vox or some other jobs up as well. But those are specifically ones I want to push to the weeds audience. Those jobs will only be open for applications for another week or two, depending. So go to voxmedia.com slash careers or just go to voxmedia.com and find the careers tab and you'll see them. Again, we're hiring for a politics or a race reporter. We are open to people from non-traditional backgrounds. We want people from diverse backgrounds. So if you have been interpreting these issues somehow, if you're a political scientist or an academic and you want to make a jump to journalism, we do need experience in the fields, but it does not need to be specifically journalistic experience. So go check out voxmedia.com slash careers. Whether you have the journalist experience, something else, we just want somebody who's going to be great at figuring out what are some of the central topics in American life. All right. So wanted to talk today uh, about the primary, about the uh Bernie Sanders panic. And one thing that's interesting to me is you you might have thought that people would be panicking that Bernie Sanders is a woolly socialist who will wreck the country with his socialism. And of course, Republicans will say that. But when I talk to Democrats uh, around town or you hear the takes on the internet, that is not really what people are saying about him. Instead, they are very concerned that he will lose the election to Donald Trump. And then this electability conversation, I feel like, winds up getting structured around excessive absolutes of language. So you'll have some people, you'll see like James Carville, who's being very entertaining about this. He's like absolute guaranteeing that Bernie Sanders can't win an election. Or then I read Jamel Bowie making uh, the case for for Sanders in The New York Times. And he has a line where he says, you know, some people say Bernie is unelectable, but that's wrong. He can win. And I think, you know, The beginning of wisdom on this is that Bernie Sanders definitely can win. There's nobody who is unelectable in the strong sense of the word, where like it is inconceivable that they would win a presidential election. Uh, Ezra, you have a a good book about polarization. Um, There is a lot of polarization. And because of that polarization, anyone who wins a major party nomination like really might win, right? Let me talk about this for a minute, because I think one thing we want to do here is use the Bernie Sanders electability conversation to talk about electability and how it's changing and what we actually know about it for for a bit. So it's important 
to recognize that this conversation happens in the shadow of 20th century American politics. And one thing that happened a couple of different times in 20th century American politics is the parties nominated somebody who is understood to be quite far relative to, to their normal candidates to the left or the right, and that person got wiped out. So famously, it happened to Republicans with Barry Goldwater in 1964. And remember, they didn't just lose the presidency that year. They had a down-ballot massacre where they lost a huge number of state legislatures, House seats, Senate seats, and that created—it wasn't just Lyndon Johnson who got the Great Society done. It was the huge Democratic majorities following that Barry Goldwater wipeout. Um, but then a couple of decades later, you have Democrats and George McGovern, and here, too, you have somebody who ends up being tarred as quite far to the left. But what happens is he we, he gets destroyed. Um, uh, Nixon wins one of the biggest landslides ever. But a big part of that is Democrats moving over to support Nixon. There were a bunch of former governors who um, uh, Dem- Democratic governors who who created a, a Democrats for Nixon campaign. Uh, the AFL-CIO did not endorse George McGovern, which is a very unusual thing. So you had very important Democratic players and constituencies sitting out. One of the reasons this would happen in those eras, why it was more plausible for Republicans to, to vote for Democrats um, in the Goldwater situation, Democrats to vote for Republicans in the Nixon situation, is that when the parties were much more mixed internally, it made more sense to vote for somebody of the other party. I mean, you'll occasionally hear now Democrats talk about Richard Nixon's relatively liberal domestic accomplishments, things like signing the, some of this stuff happened in a second term too, but he at some point talked about a guaranteed minimum income and universal health care. He signed the EPA into law. He had a lot of things he did that even now look somewhat left for Democrats of, of the current variety, not just of, of that era. And then similarly, Johnson was much more similar and, and had, an, in, particularly in his past, a more conservative record that was more appealing to Republicans. So what has happened is the party has split a tremendous amount ideologically and demographically is that you just don't see that happening anymore. And so Donald Trump, when he runs in 2016, there's this view that that kind of thing will happen to him. You're going to have a Republican civil war. Republicans will move in droves to vote for moderate mainstream Hillary Clinton. But that, of course, doesn't happen. And so before you get into anything else, it's just really important to recognize that the volatility of American presidential elections has gone way, way, way down over time. It used to be that an individual state might swing routinely eight or nine points between elections, and now it's down to less than two points. So when we're talking about who's the most electable Democrat, we're probably talking within a margin of two or three percentage points in their performance, not a margin of five or 10 percentage points. And, you know, wh- one thing to say about the the landslide era is that, you know, people talk a lot about Goldwater and they talk about McGovern uh, because those are two figures that make sort of useful polemical points. But it's also worth looking at how badly Walter Mondale lost in 1984. Or Dukakis. Um, yeah, but it, particularly because Mondale was not a left-wing factional candidate. He was a former vice president of the United States. Um, He, I'm sure, made some missteps during the campaign. But the basic thing that happened in 1984 is that Ronald Reagan was the incumbent and the economy was doing well. And so he didn't just get reelected, you know, which is what you would expect. Uh, he, He crushed Mondale, right? And Mondale didn't he didn't like have some crazy new left-wing ideas and he didn't lose as badly as as McGovern did but that's just to say that landslides were a structural feature of presidential politics at that point in time and so they were always possible and if you strayed too far out of the bounds of acceptability you had this real risk of getting crushed and when people bring that up today they're just not 
thinking seriously about the structure of modern politics, right? Which just— This is a really important point. —features so much less flexibility. The range of possible outcomes right now is, is so much smaller than it used to be. And then the flip side, though, is that simply making that point, I think, doesn't fully address the electability concern. Yeah, so let's let's let me make one more point on mm-hmm. this and then we can go into the specific electability concern because the point you just made is both interesting and really weird. So there's a great book by Francis Lee, uh it's called Insecure Majorities came out just a couple of years ago. I I talk about it in in, in my book and and have some chart I have a great chart from it. And something worth appreciating is that we are living in by far the most competitive era in American political history. That for most of American political history, there has been one overwhelmingly dominant party. Uh, For most of the post-Civil War era, it was a Republican Party. And then the post-New Deal era, it was a Democratic Party. And it's only been in the past couple of decades where you've seen routine volatility and control, where in almost every single election, you can imagine the House changing, the Senate changing, and the presidency changing. And we seem to no longer have these landslides, which I think partially has to do with the parties getting polarized. So ticket splitting is a lot less common and people moving from one side to the other. Other is a lot less common. But just more generally, there is a narrowness in how the parties are structured against each other, which is pretty unusual. And I've talked to a bunch of political scientists about this and tried to ask them why. And it is striking that they do not know. Frances Lee will tell you that she does not know, and others will also tell you that they don't know. And, and people have theories, right, maybe a more national media, which is somewhat antagonistic to those in power, so tends to focus on what's going wrong, is playing a sort of like thermostatic or homeostatic role, which is pushing in, in uh, against uh, whoever just won and so making things more competitive. But why things are, are as are as narrowly uh, premised as they are now is actually it is both a truth. We can really see it in the data and it is a mystery. But so when you think about this election coming up, one of the things that is going to be motivating on both sides, one of the things that is going to pull people out and one of the things that is just going to be an important part of the background of it is that the Senate is very genuinely up for grabs. The House very plausibly is up for grabs. And the presidency is very much up for grabs. And that's just not always been the case in American politics, where it just usually didn't seem likely that one... I mean, Democrats controlled the House for 40 years in a row. That kind of thing just doesn't happen now. So that's just put everything... It's raised the stakes on everything. And it might be contributing to itself because it. if you were a Republican in the era of Democratic dominance, it was a little bit demobilizing for you. And maybe you began voting for a Democrat just to be able to try to influence who was in power. But right now, when power is always this close to being grabbed or this close to being lost, it is on some level motivating um, for both sides equally. Right. And so then, you know, I I think once you sort of establish that framework, elections just tend to be close. Candidate penalties, I I think, are real, but they're they're modest in scale. Then I think, you know, it's important to say that the electability question can't be fully disentangled from the merits of people's underlying views. One of the pieces that has contributed a lot to the Bernie electability literature is a Jonathan Chait article in which he says that nominating Sanders would be an act of insanity, right? And I think to get the insanity conclusion, you have to have no sympathy for Sanders's substantive agenda, uh, which I think is, is true of John. But if you like Bernie Sanders, which is what Bernie Sanders supporters do, then, you know, you would need to convince people who are who are fired up and, and feeling the burn, uh, not just that Bernie might have some mild disadvantage compared to Amy Klobuchar, but it would have to be a catastrophically large 
disadvantage uh, because they well, think— Well, before we go into yeah. that, could you just make the case in both directions? I mean, we've we've both read or talked to yeah. people in the Sanders campaign, and then we ran a good piece. Could you, do you just want to make the—what is the Bernie Sanders theory of electability? And then, like, what is the the real counter? Not the John Shade counter, but the, the like, literature yeah. counter to that theory well, of electability. Well, so I, I think there's sort of two competing Sanders theories of electability out there. Uh, you know, one, which you hear a lot overtly from the campaign, is simply that— um, you know, Bernie is going to mobilize all these new people and it's going to constitute a political revolution that changes the electoral landscape and, and sweeps him into power. Uh, the other, which I think is more a little more restrained um, and that that I have made myself, is simply that, look, if you look at the polling, Bernie Sanders is a well-known figure. He has a high name recognition. His favorable ratings, uh, while not great compared to presidential nominees of past cycles, are perfectly good compared to the presidential candidates who are in the field right now. So people know who he is. People like him pretty well. His polling matchup with Donald Trump is good. And he has run a lot of elections in the past, including, you know, right now people say, ha, 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 Vermont. Uh, But actually, if you look back at 1990, 1992, 1994, Vermont was only a very slightly blue-leaning state back then. And he won several tough races, and he's consistently run ahead of Democratic Party presidential candidates. We can talk about why that is, but but I think some of it is that he has a strong reputation for personal integrity, which not everybody in politics has, and that he has an appeal to the kinds of people who are voting for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson uh, or Ross Perot or Ralph Nader, you know, people who are not like into two-party politics. And then he also scoops up the vote of orthodox party-line Democrats who may not love him, but will accept him. You know, and if I think about people who I know who are like most anti-Bernie, a lot of them are just are bitter because they feel that Bernie is not partisan enough, that Bernie did not do enough cheerleading for Hillary Clinton, that he stretched things out, that he sort of downplayed uh, the threat of Donald Trump in some way. But those people don't like Bernie, but they will definitely vote for him. Whereas other people who don't like Donald Trump but are kind of sour about the Democratic Party, they will vote for Bernie and might not vote for Joe Biden or or Michael Bloomberg. So I think that's sort of fundamentally the the case for Bernie, that he may lose some swing voters uh, here and there to the Republicans, but that he picks up on a bunch of other margins, both non-participation but also third-party voting. Yeah, so just to reflect that back to you for a minute, right now in the primaries, we are not seeing evidence of the political revolution. We are not seeing huge numbers of first-time voters. We're not seeing youth turnout like we never have before. So I I don't want to—there's an argument you will hear from Bernie land that is like he will change all of American politics, perhaps, but there's actually just no evidence of it. So let's not do that. But right now, what we are seeing is Bernie performs very well as a Democrat compared to other Democrats that— even the people you're talking about, the mixture of negative partisanship and fear of Trump and liking Bernie holds the Democratic Party together on Bernie. And then there's this sliver of the electorate that more or less agrees with the Democrats or doesn't like Donald Trump, but really does not like sort of the establishment Democratic Party. And they might vote for Bernie, too. Right, exactly. And, you know, if you think about how does Trump win with 46 percent of the vote, right? And some of that is the Electoral College. Uh, He gets two points less than Hillary Clinton. But some of it is he gets 46 percent and it's not like Hillary got 54 percent, right? He gets 46 and Hillary gets 48. So who are all those other people? Those people, those third party voters exist in a kind of 
in-between world from how we conventionally talk about persuasion and how we conventionally talk about mobilization. But like these are people who are invested enough in the political system to show up and vote uh, in presidential elections. And they are obviously not persuaded by either the narrative that the Democratic Party is amazing or that Donald Trump is so evil that you must vote for the Democrat, right? And Bernie seems to me, of the people in the field, the one who is best suited to pick up those third-party voters. Now, of course, you know, if you do the math, you sort of need two third-party voters to make up for one Dem to GOP switcher. So there's a reason people don't focus as much on third-party voters. At the same time, it's such a salient aspect of what happened in 2016 is that despite polarization, despite everything else you might say, despite a lot of journalists saying the stakes were very high, that there was a huge surge in third-party voting. And I think that's something Democrats should take seriously and something that Sanders is well-designed to address. Okay, so what's the case against Bernie's electability? The case against Bernie's electability is sort of bifurcated, right? One is this idea that I have heard a lot from mostly from like never Trumper uh, now, never Trump or Bernie operatives, that these reams of oppo are going to sink Sanders, right? That we are going to uh, see that he said something nice about the Sandinista leaders in 1984, that we are going to hear that he thinks the Cuban revolution had some successes in education policy, and that this is going to, to bring him down because it's toxic and and un-American. The other that I think is more reasonable is that he has taken a few policy stances during the course of this campaign that seem to pull very poorly. Um, I think decriminalizing illegal entry into the United States is toxically unpopular in every poll that I've seen. The public opinion on Medicare for All is much more mixed, uh, but it is certainly a riskier stance than sort of public option type stuff. Fracking ban, which a lot of people are nervous about, actually polls okay right now, uh, but I think there's a specific concern that it's regionally bad in the state of Pennsylvania and also that building trade unions really don't like this idea. And so it could provoke at least a sort of mini McGovernism where a substantial portion of the labor movement is suddenly like, oh, no, we don't, we don't like this guy. So that strikes me as a completely reasonable thing to worry about. Uh, All the evidence that we have is that, you know, taking high-profile popular positions helps you win elections. Taking high-profile unpopular positions is not helpful. And it's striking that when you see Bernie's pollster talk to Greg Sargent, or even when you just listen to Bernie Sanders talk, he doesn't emphasize those positions, right? Like, he knows that decriminalizing illegal entry isn't a good thing to campaign on because he never talks about it. But he did commit himself to that position, which doesn't seem super wise to me. Yeah, there is a broad way in which Julian Castro, including by me, um, his campaign has been very respected, but he seems to have, like, in this one debate, backed the entire Democratic field into one of the most unpopular positions that you can take in American politics. And it's worth noting it's not just Bernie who took that position, but Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and basically everybody raised their hand at that moment. Not Joe Biden, though. Not Joe Biden. Some people backed off of it later. But but I do want to talk about one other piece of this, which is because I want to put a pin maybe in this is Bernie going to get run against as like an heir to Fidel Castro or as a tax and spend Democrat? But we, so we published a piece at, at Vox from the political scientists David Brookman and, and Joshua Kalla, and they did a pretty interesting job of decomposing a bunch of survey data. And what they found is that when you look at what is happening in the guts of these surveys, which are showing uh, Sanders 
performing against Donald Trump as well or better than the other Democrats, is that Sanders is trading support among likely voters for support among more unlikely voters so that he gets very high numbers among young voters who would have to turn out at levels higher than we even saw under Obama um, for, for, for that to come true, which could happen, but also very much could not happen. Whereas a lot of more reliable suburban moderate voters who do not like Bernie seem to, to, to leave. So their concern in this piece, which this is working off of polling data and one thing we know about campaigns is that they tend to bring partisans home one way or the other. Um, something Bernie's pollster says to Greg Sargent is, you know, look, there, there are voters nervous about Bernie, but on the uh, if they lean left, they're going to be turned out by Donald Trump anyway. But the concern here is that in the midst of a good economy where a relatively good economy where a lot of people say that their specific situation is going pretty well, they're confident where the economy is going, that if Bernie is made to seem like a somewhat dangerous choice for the economy, like a somewhat unreliable player, Trump for all his flaws is sort of it's it's the status quo. And a lot of people, if you look at polling, are more or less OK with the status quo. And so with Bernie, it's a it's a somewhat dangerous bet that you're going to trade these likely voters out for these unlikely voters who could storm into American politics. But a lot of campaigns have been run on the theory that they're going to show up and then they don't. But you said to me that you've talked to other pollsters who maybe aren't seeing this. Yeah. I mean, this is not a universal view among the pollsters that I've spoken to. I need to do more work to find out exactly what's going on, because I'm not sure they have specifically tested for this. But a, a number of people I've spoken to say that in their polls, the Bernie-Trump matchup just looks very similar to the Bernie-Biden matchup, right? Uh, sort of conforming to, I think, conforming pretty closely to an Ezra Klein view of the world, like for all these hot takes, like baseline partisanship is just swamping absolutely everything. And what you see is that the candidates with lower name recognition uh, don't do as well as the well-known candidates, but that at least right now, Bernie and Biden just poll really, really, really similarly because people have, uh, I don't know, that people have strong opinions about Donald Trump, right? But isn't that an amazing thing? I, I, I to, to argue for the Ezra Klein view of the world right now, <laughs> I wish people on all sides of this debate would appreciate more fully how similarly Bernie Sanders, the Democratic Socialist, and Joe Biden, the mainstream centristy Democrat who's been around forever, are polling. I mean, the fact that they are both polling typically within a point or two of each other against Donald Trump, I think just suggests in a broad way that ideology is doing a lot less work in American politics than, than we think it is. I think one obvious thing about this is that not only do we have structural forces leading to polarization, but, you know, as we're going to talk about in our in our final segment, the odds of like the more outlying aspects of the Bernie Sanders agenda passing seem awfully dim, right? Like, it's hard to get me personally worried that B Bernie has this um, national rent control proposal that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but I'm not, like, sitting awake at night terrified that he's going to get 60 votes in the Senate for this thing, right? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me as a scare story. It's one reason, actually, that immigration enforcement strikes me as a potent line of attack, because that's something where, as we've seen under Donald Trump, like, what the president says sort of matters a lot. But the other thing I, I want to say about this as a, you know, uh, Bernie bro in these days is that I think mainstream Democrats, because they are mainstream Democrats themselves, sometimes can be blind to how vulnerable uh, their own champions are to attacks, right? That it's it's not that 
Bernie doesn't have these vulnerabilities. But like if Joe Biden is the nominee, Donald Trump will be able to say that he is the only one of the candidates who has never proposed cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Well, he has proposed cuts to Medicare, just importantly, but I take your point. Democrats will say he's proposed it, but you know what I mean? Like, there is a real strength to Bernie Sanders being able to say that he has always supported preserving and expanding Social Security and Medicare, and Republicans are trying to tear it down because Democrats in their own testing have shown it's actually very potent to run against this Trump budget proposal on on Medicare that that would enact some cuts. Uh, There's clips of Joe Biden bragging about his willingness to freeze Medicare, Social Security, and even veterans' benefits in pursuit of a balanced budget. I'm up for re-election this year, and I'm going to remind everybody what I did at home, which is going to cost me politically. I, when I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans' benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Somebody has to tell me in here how we're going to do this hard work without dealing with any of those sacred cows. And I don't want to say that an old video clip of Joe Biden is going to sink him any more than I think an old video clip of Bernie Sanders will sink him. But I would rather have an old video clip of somebody talking about obscure 1980s Cold War politics in an unpopular way than about somebody talking about like actual domestic funding priorities, right? And the reason this doesn't get doesn't get read in DC as an electoral vulnerability for Joe Biden is that supporting entitlement cuts and supporting the Iraq war were mainstream positions. It is true that the popularity of the stances you take matters to voters, but what does not matter to voters and what Donald Trump has really proved is like being inside the beltway consensus of what is sensible is not something that people care about. And like cross-pressured voters are not centrists in a like bipartisan policy center kind of way. So a couple things here. One thing I want to note on Donald Trump, because I think Donald Trump fouls up this conversation in a very important way. (laughs) A lot of people taken the, particularly Democrats have taken the lesson of Donald Trump that we don't know anything and nothing matters. And if Donald Trump can win, anybody can win. And if Donald Trump could win, like the most extreme candidate probably will win. And it's just very important to say that if a Democrat performs in 2020 the way Donald Trump performed in 2016, that because of the way electoral geography plays out, they will get destroyed. If a Democrat comes in with 46.1 percent of the vote or whatever that accounts for as the two-party share of the vote, that is going to go very, very poorly. So a Democrat has to win. As you were saying earlier, um, Clinton had, what, 48.1 against Donald Trump's 46 point something, and she lost. A Democrat is going to need, on average, something more like 49 or 50 percent compared to Donald Trump's 46 percent. So they have to improve. Donald Trump seems to have underperformed the Republican fundamentals. Um, A Marco Rubio or a John Kasich may very well have won the popular vote, even potentially quite easily. And so it's just, I think it's really worth saying that, that, that Trump is a bad pass for Democrats because they don't get this electoral handicap that the GOP gets. I don't agree with something you were saying a minute ago, which is that I I think you – I know this is the weeds. I think you're getting a little too in the weeds in the sense of 
well, voters know that most of this stuff can't get through a 60-vote Senate. But on the other hand, immigration is an executive authority issue. I just don't think people follow congressional procedure and what doesn't doesn't happen that closely. What I do think is true here, though, is that the kind of attacks that work on candidates tend to be attacks that fit with what people already believe about the candidate. So one reason I don't think Joe Biden is actually that vulnerable against Donald Trump on Social Security is that Biden has this middle-class Joe persona. It has served him well. The Democratic Party in general is well-trusted on Social Security. And I think Republicans trying to run against Democrats on Social Security, if Republicans make the mistake of focusing this election on Social Security, they will lose because they are up and down a very poorly trusted party on this, no matter what Donald Trump wants to say. And similarly, I don't think these Sandinista and Fidel Castro attacks are going to matter. I mean, for the one thing, most Americans don't know anything about the Sandinistas. The thing that is going to be a problem for Bernie Sanders, the two real positions he's taken that I think are going to really matter, I don't know how to read the fracking thing because, as you say, I think it's complicated, is one, the decriminalizing unauthorized entry on the border. Notably, one reason Bernie Sanders seems to have performed well for a very long time is he's done something that you see in in foreign countries all the time and that people talk about Donald Trump doing but not really doing, which is compared to a lot of members of his party, Bernie Sanders is very populist on economics and has been somewhat more resistant on social issues, on race and gender issues, on immigration issues. I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of debate in the Democratic primary right now about the role he played in, I think it was the 07 immigration reform bill where he was opposed to it, which was a, it was a George W. Bush bill. And um, it was something that a lot of Democrats supported. And Bernie Sanders was opposed to it from the left on a sort of wages dimension. But Sanders has moved sharply left on immigration uh, in the last couple of years in a way that opens up some vulnerabilities for him. He's way to say Obama's left on immigration when he used to be to Obama's right on immigration. So it's just worth noting that as a way he has changed and as a way he's actually vulnerable because that fits with what people believe about the Democratic Party as a potentially a party of open borders and a rising brown majority and so on. But the taxes thing, I think, is where Sanders is genuinely the most vulnerable. And that's because the attack there is true. So if you total up Bernie Sanders' agenda, and Ron Brownstein is a good piece on this in The Atlantic, it'll cost about $60 trillion over 10 years. Just for comparison here, the federal budget is about $4 trillion a year. So you're dealing with a massive increase. I mean, an increase bigger than the entire thing. Now, that comes from bringing off budget costs on budget. And we can talk, you know, we we know all this. But Bernie Sanders has arguably put forward about $20 trillion in hypothetical pay-fors, though he's not committed to most of them. Um, They're just sort of in options documents you can find. So what you're going to have is billions and billions and billions of dollars in ads saying that, you know, totaling up the cost of his agenda, which is genuinely, truly the cost of his agenda, which is very, very expensive, and then saying what that tax increase is going to be, probably in a distorted way in terms of how it would fall. But if you just average that tax increase out among people, it's very, very high. And so Sanders does not like to talk about this when you do try to say to him, he tries to change the subject. But the reason it's a quite deadly attack is that fundamentally it's sort of true. He does believe we should have much higher taxes to support a European social welfare-style state. I happen to also believe that. But historically, in American politics, that has been an unpopular position. And if you look at where Bernie Sanders is very good at turning away an attack in a debate, he's extraordinarily good at turning back an attack that is not true. If you say you're a socialist and the Soviet Union was communist and socialist and so you, you're you like Stalin, he's like, no, I'm like Denmark. But if you say 
you want to raise taxes, he gets much vaguer and he tries to change the subject and so on. And that's harder to do because he can't really just say that it's not true. He actually holds a different position than most Americans traditionally have on like how comfortable he is with taxation. That's where I think there's real electability issues with him. But it's the one that most Democrats don't even really want to talk about either because most Democrats do support higher taxes. So they maybe disagree a little bit with him in scale, but they don't want to really launch an anti-tax argument because it, it hurts basically everything on the Democratic agenda. So the party, I think, has not quite known how to test this question, but seems to me to be the fundamental one about, like, if there's really something that's going to turn off, like, suburban moderate voters, it's going to be this fear that super high tax increases, which clearly Bernie Sanders does want to fund this agenda, are going to hurt the economy. That has worked in the past against people like Mondale, right? Famously, he won't tell you, I'm going to raise your taxes. I just did. Like, whether or not it holds that much power now, I think, is an open question. But that's where I think the the play is. Right. And I mean, you know, to, to put this in context, right, uh, total government spending, federal, state, local in the United States is about 35 percent of GDP. Uh, total government spending all in in Denmark is about 51 percent of GDP. So you're talking there about a roughly 50 percent increase in the, like, total government uh, spending capacity to go from the United States to Denmark. Uh, that's slightly different from the method that you get if you tally up Bernie's particular programs. But as you say, like, Bernie says he wants to make the country like Denmark. Uh, and Denmark is is great in a lot of ways. They have a lot of good things going on there. There is no denying, though, that taxes are considerably higher and that those high taxes have consequences, right? That one thing that you see if you go to Denmark is that a meal at a middling restaurant in Copenhagen is much more expensive than a similar quality meal in the United States of America. Uh, things like an iPad cost a lot more because of the value-added tax. People have um, smaller cars. They own fewer cars. It's part of the like fun bicycle culture that they have in Copenhagen is that consumer durable goods cost a lot of money, so more people rely on their, on their bicycles. Um, the flip side is college is nearly free. Childcare is nearly free. Healthcare is nearly free. Um, you get all that good stuff, right? But it's a you strike a different balance between private consumption and public services. Bernie, as you say, the the power of that attack against Bernie is that it's true. Bernie Sanders sincerely believes that the United States would be better off as a not just more egalitarian, but as a more um, public service oriented society and, and, and economy. And I think a lot of people who like Bernie Sanders agree with him, right? I mean, in the early days, five years ago, you would see stories go viral uh, that are like, Bernie Sanders says Scandinavia is good. Here's 10 reasons Scandinavia is good. And, you know, it's like young people who are very online are, are pretty into this idea. But the reason, at least one of the reasons why the American public sector is so much smaller than the Nordic public sector is that voters don't seem to want to make that kind of trade-off. And it is going to be tough, you know, for, for him. And I do think that, like, one big question, the sort of known unknown in the electability debate is how can or will any of these candidates sort of 
pivot to the center or, or as Mitt Romney said, shake the edge of sketch when they go into the general election. Uh, Hillary Clinton really didn't, right? She spent most of her campaign talking about how terrible Donald Trump was and then trying to convince left-wing people that they should be excited about her. And I think, you know, there are reasons why she took that approach. I think any nominee will be in a somewhat different position. And I do think that to win, Bernie is at a minimum going to need to get back in touch with some of his like old campaigning in rural Vermont, uh, moderately skeptical of sort of like woke culture type stuff, uh, because that would be his path to sort of winning back, you know, Obama-Trump voters in the Midwest, something like that, because he's inherently has a, a tough problem on taxes. Do you want to move to the filibuster? Let's do it. Break? Let's talk about the filibuster. I want to play something from the last Democratic debate because I thought it was the best answer of the debate, but everybody just moved on from it almost immediately. I've been in the Senate when I've seen gun safety legislation introduced, get a majority, and then doesn't pass because of the filibuster. Understand this. The filibuster is giving a veto to the gun industry. It gives a veto to the oil industry. It's going to give a veto on immigration until we're willing to dig in and say that if Mitch McConnell is going to do to the next Democratic president what he did to President Obama, and that is try to block every single thing he does, that we are willing to roll back the filibuster, go with a majority vote, and do what needs to be done for the American uh, okay. nation. Many people on this stage do not support rolling I'm back Senator. the filibuster. Thank you. Until we're ready to do that, okay. we can't. Senator, I want to allow senators. So I'm a bit of a broken record on this point, but we haven't done that many weeds, certainly not as many as I would like on the filibuster. So I, I think now is the time because I think the Democratic primary has gone a little crazy in the sense of how much of it is focused on the differences between the plans of the candidates cannot pass as opposed to what their plans to pass anything actually are. But what's really going to matter for the next Democratic president is functionally how many votes do they have in the House or Senate? And then how many votes do they need, which is to say, what are the rules governing? Um, do you need a majority, a supermajority, et cetera? There's a certain amount a president can do through executive authority. And I've seen, you know, the American Prospect had a package of big things they can do, like canceling all student debt. People disagree on this. But a huge amount of these plans, the Green New Deal plans, Medicare for all plans, et cetera, they all go through legislation. So you need to figure out how you're going to pass that legislation. I want to give a quick sort of capsule filibuster history here, because I think a lot of people don't quite recognize how unusual the era we're living in on this dimension is. So the filibuster is not created by anybody. It is not like a rule in the Senate. It happens when Aaron Burr, after killing Alexander Hamilton, which you might have heard about in a musical, when Aaron Burr urges the Senate to like change its rule book and says, you're a great body, you, but, but, but you're ridiculously overstructured. And so they get rid of something called the previous question motion, which is still, by the way, there in the House. And the previous question is simply a motion that basically allows you to move back to the previous question to shut down what you're talking about now and go on to something else. So they get rid of that. And it is decades before anybody figures out the filibuster has now been created. There's now no rule that lets you stop somebody from talking. For a long time, this isn't that big of a deal because people don't use it that often. And when they do, it really is this sort of Mr. Smith goes to Washington approach that is just procedural warfare about how long somebody is talking on the floor. My favorite story like this is in 1908, Thomas Gore, who's a senator and he's blind, is filibustering a currency bill. And he has support from another senator, William Stone. Um, and Gore tries to yield the floor to Stone. 
but does not notice because he is blind <laughs> that Stone has <laughs> left the room. And so in that moment, the Senate is like, ha ha, and takes a vote and ends his filibuster um, because he didn't have somebody to yield to. So it's not until 1917 when cloture comes into play. Um, that's because there had been filibusters to stop some of Woodrow Wilson's efforts to begin to engage America in World War I. He calls a special session of the Senate, convinces them to, to create the cloture rule. The cloture rule at that point requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate. It's not until 1975 that it goes down to its current three-fifths or 60 votes number. And even for most of this period, the filibuster is very, very, very rarely used. So according to official records from 1917, to 1970, the Senate took in total, in total, 49 votes to break filibusters. It's an average of slightly less than one each year. And for most of this period, the filibuster is being used by Southern Dixiecrats to block civil rights efforts. From 2013 to 2014, just those two years, it had to take 218 votes to end filibusters. The 2017 to 2018 session, so the most recent session, had 168. So there's been this unbelievably huge rise in how often there are filibusters and how often there are votes to break filibusters. So we now live in the world, which we did not used to live in, where it used to be that most things in the Senate could pass with 51 votes and the exceptions like civil rights were, were rare and were often awful, but they were rare. Medicare, um, there's this great memo from inside Lyndon Johnson's administration talking about how they expect Medicare can pass with 55 votes after the 1964 election because they don't expect it to be filibustered. Um, it ends up passing with even more than that. So this thing where we now just have a 60-vote threshold on everything is new. And it means basically that almost no party ever has the capacity to pass anything there are a couple ways to get around a filibuster, like you can do a budget reconciliation bill once a year, which is very constrained and has all these weird problems. But there is no version of a democratic, big democratic agenda that's going to pass in a Senate with the filibuster. Um, but a lot of longtime senators like the filibuster, including Democratic senators, uh, Bernie Sanders has said he's not crazy about the idea of ending the filibuster. Joe Biden likes the filibuster. Amy Klobuchar likes the filibuster. Senator Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, says he regrets even the small amount Democrats did to weaken the filibuster in 2013. So it sets Warren apart that she's pretty aggressively trying to urge people to get rid of the filibuster. But if this is something Democrats don't do, then all these debates about their legislative agenda are basically moot. Because they're either not going to have the Senate at all or they're going to have 51 or 52 votes, which does not give them nearly enough power to pass anything like what they're talking about. Yes. Although that fact that the filibuster will prevent them from enacting an Elizabeth Warren agenda is, I think, one of the reasons why Democratic senators will be happy to keep the filibuster, right? I mean, when I, I have spoken to a couple of members of the United States Senate, and they will say very clearly that, you know, they are not excited about enacting uh, the Bernie Sanders $60 trillion in new spending that we were discussing previously, but that they also would not want to fight President Sanders about all that, but that they are very comfortable with a reality in which he is the president, he gets to keep talking about how he believes health care should be a right, and there is no bill because, you know, there just can't be, that that suits them very well, and in fact makes them feel more reassured about being able to campaign for the ticket and, you know, be happy Democrats, knowing that all this stuff is kind of moot, right? I think the regrets about Democrats curbing the filibuster for executive branch appointees and, and judicial appointees is a little different. Um, that's just a plain, like, shoes on the other foot kind of thing, right? Like, when Barack Obama was president, Chuck Schumer felt that making it easier to get his appointees confirmed was a good idea. 
Now that Donald Trump is president and he can't do anything to sort of force Trump to rein himself in, he kind of regrets it. Uh, By the same token, like Democrats are going to be really happy, uh, whether it's Sanders or Warren or Biden or whoever else, that they can staff an executive branch if they control the Senate. But, you know, on, on legislation, it's both that moderate senators like the idea of not being put in the hot seat and also interest groups are risk averse, right? So um, pro-choice groups have been very skeptical of filibuster reformers uh, over the years. And one reason they're skeptical came up just this past week, where it's like without the filibuster, a 20-week abortion ban would have passed the Senate uh, and would have been signed by Donald Trump. And so they say, you know, thank God for the filibuster and, uh, you know, there but for the, the grace of God go us. To me, this seems a little uncompelling. I mean, it's like, well, the filibuster makes it impossible for us to enact our popular ideas when we win, but in exchange, they also can't enact their ideas. Like that, I I, I don't quite know. I, I'm not sure I have like a political theory explanation, but like that sounds like a shitty way to think about politics. Like nobody can ever do anything, no matter how many elections they win or how popular their ideas are. Is that That's like basically your view too, right? Yeah. So a couple things on this. So one is that the way I think about this is you're choosing between the problems of paralysis and the problems of governance. So a problem of governance might be that the governing coalition passes something you don't like. And then if your dislike of it is unusual and most people like it, you're not going to win that fight. But one thing that is nevertheless true, I think, is that the problems of governance have a clearer resolution mechanism than the problems of paralysis. So right now, there's endless fighting over why things didn't happen. And it's very hard for the public to find out why something didn't happen. I mean, most people don't follow this stuff very closely. They don't know what bills are being considered. They definitely don't know what procedural mechanisms are being invoked to stop those bills from moving forward. And so what happens is they vote people into office and they get all excited. Then a couple years later, nothing has happened and their problems aren't solved and the country isn't different. And they get disillusioned and they get frustrated. There's a huge amount of intra-left fighting these days about why didn't Barack Obama get more done? And the answer often was the filibuster. Republicans arguably care a little bit less at times about getting these things done. So maybe some of it is... Bites him a little bit less hard. But nevertheless, like there's a lot that Donald Trump has not gotten done, including his wall, including changes to the legal structure, the statutory structure of immigration in this country, including all kinds of Republican ideas on health care and all these other things. And so the question of why it didn't get done is something that, like, you know, he he calls out the obstructionist Democrats. I just think it is wrong to say that the problems of paralysis are better than the problems of governance because the way a small-D democracy, which we at least sometimes pretend to be on off days, is supposed to work, is that a coalition gets voted into power. And note that to get undivided power in U.S. governance nowadays, it tends to require you to win elections in two different cycles because of the way we divide power. So it's pretty hard to get the House, the Senate, and the White House and even beyond that, potentially the Supreme Court. And so, but if you're able to do it, then it seems to me that what you should do is you should be able to pass your agenda and then the public can decide, did they like what happened? So something you'll hear from Democrats all the time is that if there wasn't a filibuster, maybe Republicans could have repealed the Affordable Care Act. And on the one hand, I think this is wrong because they tried to do it through budget reconciliation and failed to get even 51 votes. But I can I can make the argument that if they hadn't had the weird budget reconciliation rules, they could have crafted a more popular package and maybe gotten 51 votes for it. But to that point, I think you have to ask yourself – 
do you think health insurance for tens of millions of people is important to them, in which case taking it away from them is going to matter in their politics and matter in who they vote for and matter in terms of the incentives of the system? Or do you think it doesn't matter? And if you don't think it matters that much to people, then maybe it's actually not that important in the first place. And that's kind of true all the way down. I think this is true for a lot of issues around choice and, and other things. Now, I recognize people worry about tyranny of the majority issues. What if you have an issue set where it is popular, but the popular thing is going to impinge on people's rights. I will say we have a number of protections for the Constitution and the, and the legal system. We also have all the other veto points of American politics and divided government. My argument with the filibuster is that it's just it's one thing too many. It's a supermajority requirement on top of all that other stuff, not a move to a direct democracy approach to how you construct human affairs. So I just I just genuinely find it weird. But I think that, you know, in the Senate, it gives individual senators more power and the other argument I should note here is the argument that the Senate is biased against Democrats, which it is because of the the I think you had a piece on this um, data for progress report that the average state is three points to the right of the average voter. So let's call it a three point lean for Republicans in the Senate. So wouldn't making majoritarian governance in the Senate easier um, just make the Republicans more powerful, which in some ways might actually be the outcome. Although on the other hand, if Democrats ever want to do the work that is going to make the Senate more proportionate in terms of who it represents, like making D.C. and Puerto Rico states, because that's both the right thing to do and will also lead to more Democratic senators, they would need to get rid of the filibuster because that would always be filibustered by Republicans under the current situation. So if you just leave things exactly the way they are, maybe you don't like risk your problem getting much worse, but you definitely make it impossible to make it any better. Yes, I agree with all that. The one thing that I, that I do want to come back to, though, is that it is good that Elizabeth Warren is making these points because she's correct about them. But for one thing, it's a weird thing to raise in a presidential campaign because this is not like up to the president, even remotely. I mean, no, nothing is you well, know, nor's legislation. Right. But I mean, it really isn't in this case, right? Like it's an internal Senate rules issue uh, that that I think, you know, if anything, like you would lead in the Senate, you would have more efficacy and reform. But more broadly, I, I do think like filibuster reform will come someday. It's so irrational and it keeps getting eroded over the, the circumstances of time. But when it comes, it's going to have to be framed as something other than one of the furthest left or furthest right members of a political party really wants to get rid of it so that they can pass their extremely expansive agenda. Uh, because this is actually the feature of the filibuster that, that the members of the Senate like, as I was saying before, is that, you know, like Republicans in the Senate don't really want to take a vote on uh, some of the loopier aspects of the sort of Trump conservative agenda, and it, and it lets them duck it. When reform has come, it's because it, it speaks to items that are in the firm consensus of the party. So I, I wish Joe Biden was a filibuster reformer because it's actually a Biden presidency that would pose this question in the squarest possible way. Like minimum wage increase is very, very popular. Uh, Democrats have now all talked themselves into the idea that it's a good idea on the merits. Republicans would block it anyway. And then Repub Democrats will be left sitting around to themselves saying like, why, why should we accept this, right? Why should we have to go back to our voters in the midterms and be like, we didn't deliver on anything for you when we have all these, these kind of popular ideas. And so it's, it's going to have to, I think, ultimately be legislators from the more moderate wing who, who take that tack. 
And it's going to require them to let go of the illusion that the filibuster rule generates bipartisan compromises, because that's what they think, or at least what they say happens here, that when you need 60 votes, what you then get is like consensus legislating. And the clock has been ticking on that for a really long time. And we just don't see it, right? There is no big middle out compromises happening on the big issues facing the United States. Yeah, I think that's very important. It, two, two things about that. One is, it is possible that that used to be true. It's a little bit hard to tell. But it's very possible that in the era of more mixed parties, where compromises are more frequent, that the threat of filibusters actually did create this capacity to do more compromises or, or, or push towards more compromises. But we just can look at it right now. We have a record high number of filibusters viewed historically, and we have more party line votes and less compromise governance than basically ever. And so it's like we know it's not true. And the reason it's not true is a very straightforward set of political incentives that the way you might think about a situation like this is that a politicians' incentives run in roughly this order. Um, They want to get reelected. They want to be in power. And then they want to govern. If you make it such that they're not going to be able to kill a bill, which will help them get into power, then maybe their incentive is like they want to get reelected, so they need to show their constituency they're on the bills. Um, But as it is, what they're trying to do with the filibuster is the filibuster has been a way not that you create compromise, but that you actually kill legislation. You kill the governing party's entire agenda in an effort to become the governing party yourself. That's What happens when the filibuster moves from something that individual senators do to something parties do, it's not about an individual senator registering a a dissent or trying to become part of a bill. It's just like it is a way parties hamstring the other. Um, We should also – I mean that that brings up this other issue, which is that – We don't have what people think of as a filibuster. It's not a talking filibuster. People do not stand up and speak. It is a procedural objection that is communicated in procedural terms between the leadership offices from one to the other. I've heard a lot of people who say that, you know, what we should do is create a a talking filibuster. Bernie Sanders has actually said this at different points with the idea just being if you're going to filibuster, you should have to talk on the floor. I think one thing that misses is the reason we typically don't have talking filibusters right now is often that the party being filibuster filibustered does not force them. You could force people to talk. It it is possible actually even under current rules, at least to some degree. But the issue is that if all you're going to do by doing that is give the minority party 60 hours where you burn your time as a majority and they get the C-SPAN cameras on them to make the case about how you're horrible endlessly, that actually doesn't help you at all. So the the party being filibuster doesn't want a talking filibuster. Um, if there's some way to make it so that the individuals could do it like and, and would do it more often, I think that's fine. Bernie Sanders very famously did do a talking filibuster for a while um, in the aughts, and, and that's part of what launched him into prominence. But it's it does doesn't help you. Like the 60 vote threshold is the thing that I think is really toxic here. I think it's important to, to deal with. Now, to, to just one other big point you made, Matt, which is that this is a Senate problem. Like, yeah, I think that's totally true. I am a little less convinced than you are that the reason it holds that way is that senators want to constrain their own party. When I talk to members of the Senate about this of both parties, they're worried about the opposition first and foremost. And then secondarily, 
it is a completely good point that to talk about what presidential candidates are telling the Senate to do is a little bit ridiculous. And on the other hand, that is the exact same issue on legislation and everything else. So presidential campaigns operate in a weird fantasy land. And I think you're like us journals are always in a little bit of a bind on whether or not we're going to play by the rules of fantasy land or we're just going to say, well, the president doesn't have any of this power. And so, you know, we're going to refuse to cover debates and, and speeches. I think we should say, though, that like presidential campaigns, this is a sort of half-assed thought, but like presidential campaigns were not always as like, here's my bill oriented as they have become. And I feel like in a lot of people's mind, like you and me and Vox and Wonkblog are somehow uh, causally responsible for this turn. And to whatever extent that that is true, like if you were out here listening, like I don't think either Ezra or I are calling for presidential candidates to run on like totally implausible legislative blueprints. It's good to have the campaigns like talking about the issues and what they want to do. Uh, but if if I could have like turned back time and gotten the candidates for office in 2020 to speak about presidential authority in a more realistic way, like I think that would have been great. A, it would have avoided some of the weird electability pitfalls uh, because like what we were talking about when we talk about vulnerabilities is exclusively like Sanders and a few other candidates committing themselves to ideas that couldn't possibly pass Congress. And so like why even bring this up? Fantasy legislating has had a powerful impact on this 2020 primary and for no really good reason. I agree with that. I think it's probably a good place to to close our weed special here. Okay, fantastic. This weeds election special. We're going to be having Saturday weedses every uh, Saturday, um, alternating between me and Ezra talking about the election and and Jane Costin's interviews. Thanks to Ezra. Thanks to sponsors. Thanks to listeners out there. Thank you to Jeff Geld, the weeds producer, and the weeds uh, will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>